You know, democracy, rule of law doesn't happen overnight. I think that's that was a bit of the naivism we had after the wall fell. And when you looked at a lot of African countries who became more democratic in the 90s, was that if you just get democracy and votes, then you will get all of the values of a liberal democracy. You don't get that until you have rule of law, until you understand to separate the powers of the judiciary and politics. And this is a long way to go. And we see that still a difficult in some Eastern European countries that is under scrutiny from the EU now on the separation of powers, for example. Orna Solberg served as Prime Minister of Norway from 2013 to 2021 and currently leads Norway's Conservative Party in opposition. Norway seems readier than most democracies to give one-time Prime Ministers another shot. Solberg's immediate predecessors, Jens Stoltenberg and Kjell Magne Bondevik, both did two stints, and Norway's only previous female Prime Minister, Groharlem Brundtland, did three. Polls suggest there is every chance that the next Norwegian general election due in 2025 will return Orna Solberg to the Prime Minister's residence at Incognitogata 18 in Oslo. I'm Andrew Muller and I spoke to Orna Solberg on The Big Interview. Well, I wanted to start at the start. I'm interested in what set you on a career in politics at a very, very young age. Was there nothing else you wanted to do? Oh, yes. I started to be active in the youth movement of the Conservative Party just before I became 16, which was in the 70s. It was a very white and black political debate at that time among young people. It's uh, still the Cold War. It was still a lot of discussions on it's just before, you know, you got this whole, what we call the conservative wave that you got in Europe in the late 70s and early 80s for more freedom and other things. And and I did this just for fun, for the activity. I never thought, at that time, I never thought I would be a politician. I, I never thought that until I was nominated to parliament, because even though I had been member of the city council, I mean, that's something you do on your spare time. It's not a, it's not a job. And I always thought I would have an ordinary job. But then somebody thought that I that I was a talent that they wanted to get into Parliament before I finished university. It's a question that I suspect may occur to a lot of people who live in uh, slightly less functional and orderly and wealthy countries than Norway, which is pretty much every country. Is there any amount of frustration at being a politician in Norway? Do you ever start finding yourself thinking, everything's kind of fine as it is, things more or less work? Is there really all that much for me to be doing? Well, I think you will find challenges in all countries. I mean, in Norway... I'm often asked why did, what was the issues I was concerned about when I was 16 and became political active. I was concerned about educational policies, women's rights, development in the third world. And I chose the Conservative Party because I believed that the ideology, believing in the individual, taking away restrictions, more freedom, would make it possible to become better on all of these issues. And I I still find challenges in this area. So when I was prime minister, I was working on education for girls around the world as part of our strategy. So I think you will always find things that you can get engaged in. And I think even though we are healthy, that um, there is for most Norwegians compared to the rest of the world, we are happy to born in this period of history and in our country. 
We still have young people falling out of our education system. We still struggle with people who have mental illness challenges. And we are going to solve the climate challenges of the world, which also means that Norway has to sort of restructure our economy in the future. This is another thing that may also seem different from inside Norway, but it's certainly how it seems from outside Norway. And this applies to, I I think, all the Nordic countries to a large extent, that your politics seems just a lot more collegial, friendly and bipartisan. After you lost the most recent election, you quite cheerfully said that you thought your opponent would actually make quite a good prime minister. Is that how it actually seems from inside Norwegian politics? Do you just put on a friendly face and behind that it's as rancorous and brawling and scheming and and nasty as everywhere else? I think it's nastier inside political parties. My party is quite peaceful these times. It's not always been like that. Now the Labour Party has had a little bit more of that, but it goes a little bit up and down. Of course, if you have success, it's better than if you don't have success. But it's, uh, no, I think it's important to remember that all the Scandinavian or the Nordic countries are quite small and we are quite heterogeneous. I think it's the divisions is not that big in our societies. And I think people also want us to be finding common solutions on the big issues. For example, we say that we have, it's it's important for us that our foreign policy doesn't really change much. It changes a little bit, but not much between different governments because we are a small country and we should be relied on like that. So there are divisions inside, but most, I think most members of parliament, it would be people I would happily go out and have a glass of wine with and discuss issues with after a debate because usually most politicians are more social than the average Norwegian also because you know you have to transfer in a system that elects people who maybe are a little bit more outward spoken and things like that. But that, yes, it is nice. Like It's usually like that. Then you will always find some, some people that you don't really want to take a glass of wine with because they are too, they can't relax after a debate. You mentioned foreign policy there, which does bring us to the inevitable. Norway is a country which does have a land border with Russia. People, I think, may tend to forget that because Norway seems, if you take the first glance at the map, quite a long way away from Russia. But you do have that border up in the high north. Has what we've seen Russia do over the last 18 months changed the way Norway thinks of its security, do you think? Or perhaps should it have changed the way Norway thinks of its security? We have been members of NATO since the founding of NATO, and that was our Second World War experience. We were neutral, and we got occupied by Nazi Germany. And it comes back to one thing that I think Norwegians know, and that is that the strategic part of our coastline is extremely important. We have a coastline that if you control that, it's easy to control the entrance into the Atlantic ice-free harbor for Russia the biggest naval base they have in our part of the world. In fact, the biggest they have. Their nuclear submarines are placed there, just on the other side of the harbor, meaning that we are placed in a very geographically important area for Russia. So we know that their plan is, if they ever come into a larger situation, they have this bastion defense system that they have, which will lock in Norway because they will try to control the North Atlantic part. This has been important for us always. And of course, Increased tension increases this focus. We had a long period 
where we thought we would be peaceful in Europe. But I think especially 2014 made us change. We have increased our finances for defense, not as much as uh, NATO would have liked or, or to reach the goals because our economy has also been growing. But we will probably now have to uh, look through that again. In fact, we have had a commission that's been looking at that, suggesting quite heavily to increase expenditure for defense issues. But also uh, yesterday, in fact, our chief of defense, well, he's recommending a quite strong buildup of Norwegian defense capacity in the years to come. But there has been a recurring theme, I think, in, in European discourse over the last 18 months of those countries, the Baltic states, Eastern Europe in particular, those countries right up against Russia's border, saying to the rest of Western Europe that you've been complacent, you were kidding yourselves, you indulged in wishful thinking where Russia was concerned. Despite the fact that Norway does have that land border with Russia, do you think Norway was guilty of that? Do you think you thought you had a special relationship with Russia and that you understood Russia in a way that the rest of Europe maybe didn't? Maybe I would say that's one area where there's a little bit difference in the different parties in Norway. I was a bit criticized after 2014 by my opponents, the Social Democrats, saying that we should try to have more collaboration with Russia, trying to build something new. That stopped. That debate is finished now. <laughs> Our view was that you should, we should be in line with the rest of Europe, especially as a neighboring country. We should not be further ahead meeting Russia closer, or we should be behind them. We should, in fact, stay in line because divide and conquer is a Russian tradition and trying to split up. So we were trying to be in line both with the sanctions, but also with the type of cooperation we have. Then we have to remember we have, we still have cooperation with Russia and Norway in the north because we have joint work on fisheries, negotiations, control of the fisheries. We have rescue operations together. And we will continue doing that because we try to make sure that we have a peaceful corner that is working and that if there is an emergency on a Russian fishing boat in the area where we will meet them quickest, we will go. So we will just try to do that. But the political cooperation is now near to zero. I mean, it is a question I've been curious to ask people who have dealt with Russia and its principles up close over the last 18 months. But you obviously dealt extensively with Putin and Medvedev and Lavrov and all of the other people who have overseen this calamity in Ukraine. Are you surprised that this is where this Russian regime got to? I think we were surprised that they dared to do a full-scale try for an invasion. And they probably thought that their military capacity was better than it, it has shown to be. Because if you look at, with it, at Western eyes, they would not have anything to gain from doing that. In fact, they would hurt their own country from doing that. But of course, that's the learning that we have to take. You can't look at Russia with Western thinking. You have to look at Russia with and Putin with their logic that they have in their head. They are the concepts of Russian grandness that they have sort of built up. And that's very different from our logic of, we would not form a democratic country who would look at that there were no gains from trying to, to push Ukraine or, or invade Ukraine. And I think this is where we failed in a way, is to really understand that Putin in fact would 
take the chance that we never would have taken. But when you spoke to Putin personally, perhaps even informally, that that sense of Russian grandeur that you speak of, did he ever talk about, did he ever express any ideas about Russia's manifest destiny to reclaim its empire? No, not to me. But I became prime minister in 2013, and I met Medvedev in Sochi during the Winter Olympics, just before the annexation of Crimea. And at that time, of course, there were more normal operations. Then we had four years of nearly no cooperation, just a few meetings in the uh, skirts of international meetings where you would just have a small informal talk. Then I had a regular meeting again in St. Petersburg in 2019. And I really felt at that meeting that Putin was trying to reach out to the Nordic countries for a better cooperation not talking so much about Russian self-interest at that time, but that he also was evaluating the different prime ministers where they really they haven't had that much cooperation before. He is obviously a smart guy, but the Russian logic is different from our logic. And I think that's one of the areas that we just, that is, we just have to think about that. You know, the loss of people doesn't count as much in a country which have had SARS, communism, and all of those things the value of life doesn't seem to be as strong as it would be in our countries. Do you think that Europe, though, and perhaps Norway in particular, has to assume that that's never going to change, that we just have to stop thinking about Russia as if it's just another European country? Well, I think we have to have a regime change. And it's not sure that if Putin goes these days, that there would be a better regime afterwards when it comes to more Western thinking. The opposition is weak. Of course, they have been hit very hard, especially the Western-oriented opposition in Russia. And a lot of them have left the country. And since the civil society organizations also have been cracked so hard down on, it's difficult to see what will happen. And then you won't have to look at Russia with a different eyes. Is there no hope for Russia? Yes, there are. There are hope in the long term that, that there will be changes. But, you know, democracy, rule of law doesn't happen overnight. I think that's that was a bit of the naivism we had after the wall fell. And when you looked at a lot of African countries who became more democratic in the 90s, was that if you just get democracy and votes, then you will get all of the values of a liberal democracy. You don't get that until you have rule of law, until you understand to separate the powers of the judiciary and politics. And this is a long way to go. And we see that still a difficult in some Eastern European countries that it's under scrutiny from the EU now on the separation of powers, for example. I just wanted to ask one more question about the ramifications of Russia's invasion of Ukraine for your part of the world, which is obviously it has redrawn the security architecture of the Nordics. Finland has joined NATO. Sweden presumably will. Has it caused Norway, obviously already a member of NATO, to rethink the wisdom of joining the European Union? And if it hasn't, do you think it should? I'm in favor of a European Union membership for Norway, and I've always been that. I think we belong in the European Union, and we do, with our EA agreement, accept a lot of the rules and regulations when it comes to the internal market, which is a heavily you know, part of all of our economy, which is important for our businesses. But the impact on the Norwegian population is not that big. It's a bit increasing, but it's still below 30 who is in support of, of a membership. So... 
I think it takes a longer time and maybe a little bit more crisis in our country before people are seeing that we need we need to do that that change. And because we are a member of NATO, we of course feel that we have the security that was needed. And we've done a lot of policy things the last 15 years to make sure that people are training. We do have a lot of training and exercising in Norway, learning, you know, winter warfare to our allies, to learning Brits and Americans to ski and things like that, so that we know that we can operate together in our country, in our in our type of weather conditions and others. And of course, the enlargement of NATO with Sweden and Finland will just strengthen this enormously also for Norway, because we are able to work much better and much better integrated with our neighboring countries. Well, let's talk a bit about the position that you're in right now. As you would, I'm sure, see it yourself, you are presently, obviously, the Norwegian voters will decide, but between prime ministerships, it's quite unusual for a prime minister after losing an election to stay on as opposition leader. What was the thinking behind that? Was there any point at which you thought, okay, the, the people have made their choice, I'll take the hint, I'll go? I think taking the hint in... We are we are not a two-party system, so multi-party systems functions a, a bit differently than then you don't really vote on only on the prime minister. You vote on, on policies and coalitions and all of these these things. And I think my feeling was that I have a lot of talent in my party. They don't feel very ready for taking over to lead the party now, and I I have tried to push them more forward so that they will take over. But I also felt that I have more to give. And I am one of those politicians who who talk a lot about people staying on in the workforce, continuing to work, even if they're past 60s. So I just said, well, I'll continue. And then, then of course, we have very good opinion polls these days, good support. And at least at these days, I don't know what it would be in 2025, but these days, it seems like it was very temporary that the people didn't want me as prime minister. <laughs> and then we never know what will happen the next months or years. Temporary though it may be, is it difficult not to take losing an election personally? After eight years in government, it's important to remember that it's difficult to get re-elected in Norway. And we won the second, we, we, we got re-elected once. After eight years, we have to go back to the 50s when the Social Democrats were there, really, really big and all other parties were much smaller. On, that we had a three-term prime minister consecutive time. And I think you don't take that as personal in a way because it's more policies, it's politics and others. And then you just, uh, maybe if the opinion polls had been very low, so now I would have said, okay, I take the hint, but it's the opposite. But has the fact of losing that election caused you to and and your party to rethink anything? Are you are you, are you pitching anything dramatically different for twenty twenty five than what you did in two thousand and twenty one? Well, yes, on some issues, but not because it's dramatically different, but because the world evolves. We have had large changes the last years. First, we had the pandemic, of course, that had done as we've seen very good signs of the Norwegian society, but we also see areas that we, we, we need to be better on. We have had Ukraine energy crisis coming out of, of the whole crisis in, in Europe. So we need to make new policies. And in fact, uh, some years in opposition makes it possible for us to rethink policies, not because what we did was wrong, but because when the world changes, you need to make new policies. 
You can't always answer with the old things. I don't believe that 2025 will be like 2021 election or 2017 election because the world have moved on. And for example, if you look at defense, we need to do more. And this will put a burden. We have to do less than other things. We see that in our education system, we need to strengthen more people taking STEM education in universities in the future. So we are a living political party when it comes to policymaking these days. And that's a little bit easier outside government than inside government. But nevertheless, is it still a hard case to make, perhaps to a fortunate people like the Norwegians and a fortunate country like Norway? People who are already very comfortable really don't like being told that they may have to do things which will make them perhaps less comfortable. Yes, that's always difficult. It's difficult when it comes to getting to understand that we have to make changes due to the environment. But then, of course, we've had now an energy crisis on the price side in Norway, which means that the country who had had the lowest price in Europe always now have had higher prices, and it sticks into people's economy. The private economy is going to be a bigger issue, I think, towards 2025. I think tax cuts will be a little bit sexier in 2025 than they were in 2021. And and we, of course, and, and what we have seen, when you've had a, a red-green government, we will also see that some of the things they have done, people are reacting against. We have a big debate in our party, on, uh, in our country, on how much private uh, or non-governmental organizations should participate in, in welfare, in care, how much choices should you be able to do which I think people are very engaged in. And, and so there are issues that is new. Going back to the pandemic, which you mentioned there, you did make a particular point during that period of trying to address, uh, reach out to Norway's children. I mean, obviously, it was an extremely stressful period for children who'd had their routines massively disrupted. But why did it occur to you that that was something you needed to make a particular point of? Well, I think we got a little bit inspired by a speech the Danish prime minister, she gave a sort of a, three-minute speech to young people. And we thought that maybe we should do this differently. We should talk to them. And, and, and of course, we are we are concerned, you know, you know, getting people to understand why we are doing difficult things in a, in a situation like pandemic, like closing schools. It's important not only to talk to the parents, but also to talk to the children, to get them to understand why they can't have all their friends on their birthday parties and, and understanding the responsibilities. And then, of course, the, and I think it was, we had this first press conference. We had several of them. The first press conference in the early days of our nearly lockdown, I think we had an enormous amount of people watching television at the same time because it was part of, you know, all schools told people to, to go in, but also parents and others. And one of the remarks, of course, was that the children were asking better questions than the <laughs> normal journalists were doing. So maybe... <laughs> Is more informative. Now, I think it's important when you hit young people and children so much as you do in a pandemic or if in any other situation, you need to address them directly because they need to see that you care and they need to hear the arguments and not just have to listen to their teachers and parents. It's part of the community thinking that we have. Um, I just have one question further, which I'm always quite curious to ask Norwegian politicians, but especially one who has been Norway's prime minister. Did you ever see the TV programme occupied? Partly, yes. And you know, when that came first, 
I was in the north on a big conference and the the Russian news agency TASS was there and they asked me did, if I'd seen it and they said, do you think it's realistic? <laughs> and I said, no, 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 the Swedes would never give us up. <laughs> so, trying to get out of a bad, bad um, situation there. But uh, yes, it's, it was interesting. It was well, well made. Not maybe that realistic, but interesting. Orna Solberg, thank you very much for joining me on The Big Interview on Monocle Radio. That's it for this edition of The Big Interview. It was produced by Emma Searle and edited by Jack Dewars. From me, Andrew Muller, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.